Welcome to the With Faith in Mind podcast. I'm John Terrell, today's host, and I also serve as Executive Director of Upper House. Today, we explore the topic of seminary education. It's part of our series on Christian education at the crossroads. In this episode, we welcome Dr. Garwood Anderson to the show. Gar, welcome to With Faith in Mind. Hey, it's great to be with you. Thanks for the invite. It is great to see you. Um, Let me uh, share with our guests a bit about uh, Garwood Anderson. Um, Gar serves as the Dean of Neshota House and Professor of New Testament. Uh, He's been a member of the faculty uh, at Neshota House since 2007 and Dean since 2017. Before coming to Neshota House, Garwood was on the faculty of Asbury Theological Seminary. He's also taught as a visiting professor at Bethel Theological Seminary, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, Reformed Theological Seminary, and West African Theological Seminary in Lagos, Nigeria. Before his academic career, Dr. Anderson served for 17 years on the campus staff of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. He's married to Dawn. They have three adult children, two sons-in-laws, and a grandson. And I think most of your kids are pretty close by, aren't they? Not bad. One in Chicago and uh, one in Dallas, maybe not permanently. Uh, and ho- hopefully in the Midwest sometime in the future. And then we have uh, our grandson and their family just down the road in uh, Wauwatosa, west of Milwaukee. Okay, so that Dallas one I didn't know about. Well, but, uh, you know, uh, that is a fun story because my daughter married one of our seminarians. Okay. And uh, so, so- he it was ordained a priest this fall and is serving in a curacy in the Diocese of Dallas. So, okay, uh, so this is yeah. this is new. Okay, very good. Well, occupational hazard uh, that one. It is. It is. Um, Gar is also a lover of music, uh, especially classical English choral music and jazz. I, I know um, you did a BA in music at University of Wisconsin Eau Claire, and then went on to do your MA in New Testament at Trinity, and then your PhD in New Testament at Marquette University. But I, I didn't know that part of your bio that takes you back to your undergraduate years where you studied music. Yes. Yeah, that was um, what what I found out as an undergrad was that I loved music and that it had to be avocational. It wasn't it wasn't what I was about professionally. (laughs) Um, And so somewhere in the middle of all of that, I thought I might like to study theology someday. Uh, And someday I did, but not right away. Um, But, you know, I'll tell you a, a quick side point to that. Um, one of my best friends as an undergrad student was Janine Brown, who is a New Testament scholar. And um, we were in the music department together. She was my piano accompanist. Um, and we've had this like fun parallel uh, uh, scholarly journal in, uh, journey into New Testament studies. And we were just both members of the university chapter and developed a love for scripture. And uh, we've been friends ever since. Oh, that's a great story. Well, I do want to go back a little bit before we get into the the meat of our conversation, Gar, and I, I'd love to hear a bit from you about where your passion for Christian education began. Uh, where did it begin and when did it begin? I mean, you've spent your whole professional c- career really around Christian education, university, then seminary education. And so how did that start for you? And then, you know, a bit of how it has evolved over 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 the years, uh, through the, you know, through the trajectory of your career. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I think it has to have something to do with my own, you know, Christian, uh, testimony formation. And it really is a fairly simple story, which is that I was brought up, raised in a really wonderful, large Christian family with almost kind of ideal role models of my parents and among my siblings. Um, and so I, I came to the Christian faith um, sort of easily. It was sort of handed to me on a platter. Um, at the same time, as a late adolescent, early young adult, I had sort of intellectual questions about it. And, you know, I wondered, as people do, do I believe this? And if I do believe it, is it just because I happen to be raised a certain way? Is, is the Christian faith coherent? And so I became interested in in apologetics and theology and just trying to make sense of the of the Christian faith. And then I, I came to realize, and this was really a hallmark of university when I was a college student, 
that, you know, the Christian faith and the Lordship of Jesus Christ had to do with every single endeavor, in, including our thinking and our academics and so forth. So I, I just became a voracious reader at that time. And uh, this is partly why music became avocational, is that I was just more interested in other things. And so uh, in the process, then uh, trying to think Christianly about everything became a passion. Um, and then I think the way that that ended up developing is through my uh, ministry with undergraduate and graduate students within a varsity, um, I, I retained that passion, but I came to see that perhaps some of my gifts were more in the area of teaching, maybe even scholarship. And I kept sort of doing that on my time. And it wasn't quite in the center of the job that I had. So um, I was urged on by my seminary professors that I might pursue a PhD, and I did. And I was just very blessed then to have a faculty job full time. And um, my passion at that point really became the church and the difference that well-trained, winsome, articulate uh, in, people of integrity make in a local parish, in a local church. And so that just became a kind of a consuming passion. Train them to study the Bible well, to teach well, to preach well, uh, to live out the Christian faith. And it has a transformative effect in local churches. And so that really became sort of what gets me out of bed in the morning. Yeah, that's really been a calling that's been consistent throughout your life. I know a little bit about your story. Um, for, for our listeners, many of you know Cam Anderson is a colleague here, our associate director. Cam and Garwood are brothers. I don't remember, was it a dairy farm you grew up on or or kind of a, a general? You know, a, a, yeah, we, we were uh, all born in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And yes. there was uh, farming on uh, in the family on both sides. Um, right. And Cam sort of grew up being uh, eight years older than I am, he sort of grew up in that environment until we moved to uh, the suburb of Milwaukee in the early 60s. I had okay. three years up there and, and no, very, virtually no memories. But yeah, that's our okay. roots is a rural, um, rural upper Michigan. Yeah. So you, you, you have kind of a, a, a deep sort of wellspring of local church, rural church, uh, but th that would have been a bit more of Cam's story, having been an older brother. That's right. Mm -hmm. Let's let's transition to um, the, the Neshota House. Um, the seminary you lead is really unique. Um, for the benefit of our listeners, um, would you share a bit about Neshota House? Um, in in what ways does it follow uh, a path that is, um, or or sort of stake out a path? That's different than many of the more you know different the traditional seminaries or seminaries that follow a bit of a different model. What's what's unique about Neshota? If I were to visit, uh, what would I experience? Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, great question. So, I mean, let's just start with a name, right? It's called Neshota House Theological Seminary, and one of our branding issues is like, what's a house? Upper House maybe has the same issue. We do. Uh, Cam and I think it's just hilarious that we both work for organizations with the last name House. That that's just kind of crazy to us. But um, we're, we're a house because um, you know we're although we're a seminary and it's in our name, we're also founded on really highly communal principles. So when Neshota House was established in 1842, uh, so we're 180 years old. Uh, yeah. The original impetus, impetus was missional. You know, before they used that word missional, we were mm -hmm. a missional seminary because um, at that time, uh, we're, we're a seminary in the Anglican tradition uh, established in the Episcopal Church going that far back. And at that time, um, the, the challenge facing the Episcopal Church was planting churches on the Western frontier and trying to train up and raise people that could do that when the frontier was really a hard place to live, right? So you're in the middle of the 19th century, your seminaries are on the East Coast, they're urban in general, especially New York City, and folks didn't necessarily do that well on the frontier because they hadn't trained under those conditions. Mm. So Neshota House was founded back then to be on the frontier in order to serve the frontier and extend um, the Anglican tradition out to the, to the Western United States. Um, and so we train people in under the conditions in which they would eventually 
live in. And that sort of missional identity established who we are from the beginning. But then there's sort of a secondary factor there, which is we were also uh, under the influence of more sort of high church, high Anglo-Catholic Oxford movement uh, Anglican principles. So that meant that this was a more sacramental, uh, more liturgically high church, um, more Catholic in um, ethos, sort of an institution. And if you take that missional and that sort of Catholic high church sensibilities, that's really who we are and what we've been for 180 years. But then if you add to that the fact that we really have a kind of a Benedictine or kind of quasi-monastic ideal that we follow. So we live in a very close community um, that a lot of seminaries have done away with, right? So these days, um, you said traditional, we're the traditional seminary and what has become the standard seminary now model has been, uh, people have maximized, I would say accessibility um, for all kinds of good reasons. They've maximized the accessibility of theological formation, but they've minimized sort of the communal um, and interpersonal uh, and liturgical worship elements of formation. And, and we maximize those things. So um, I, I don't disparage any other seminary. I was thrilled to work when I worked at Asbury Seminary. We were a commuter seminary. I went to seminary as a commuter. I, I don't disparage that at all, but there really isn't anything like um, a community of people that live cheek to jowl and learn how to lead communities by being formed in community. And that, yeah, that's so important. I'm glad that you sort of corrected my language. Oh, I didn't really mean it as I, a correction. But it no, I, funny, it, right? it, it, it's right on. It's right on. I think you really are in some ways, uh, you're, you're really focused on a traditional model of of formation that is that does stand in contrast to accessibility and and in some ways um, kind of the hybrid models and all the ways that seminaries have tried to innovate to to broaden uh, potential student communities and things like that. And, and you know we're not against that, nor do we you know fail to understand that. And in fact, we do our own version of that. We we also have a hybrid distance program and we have low residency programs, but we don't have any no residency programs. Right. So even compared to other sort of hybrid distance programs, we say, um, even though we know we could have more students by taking more things online and remote, we say, no, we just think that being here, worshiping in our chapel twice a day, um, sharing meals together, sitting with your professors, um, so much of our learning happens outside of the classroom and the assignments. Uh, we just don't see any way that you can replicate that um, in any other way. And so much of the interpersonal and personal formation just happens that way. We, we just believe in it. And um, kind of against the grain, we've, we've hung on to that because we think um, it's too important. And sort of the success rate for uh, ministerial formation isn't really that good. Um, and I don't think it's going to get better to the extent that theological education becomes increasingly commodified and sort of turns into, a, and I don't disparage any, anybody here, but it, it's kind of a drive-through experience. And we're at a banquet table here. Yeah. And I, you know, I'd been through seminary and I did it as a, you know, in a part-time model uh, while working, uh, the, the, being able to do courses in residence, but also from a distance um, was helpful for me. But it, you know, it 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 isn't the full experience. It's it's a different kind of experience than than you have when you're in community, cheek to jowl. I think was the yeah. the term you yeah. used. It's a very different experience. Yeah, and I did mine that way, John. So I I don't say it. It was great for me academically. It was yeah. great for formation, um, spiritual formation. That happened in other places, and it, and right. that can that can work. But yeah. um, what we're doing here is. Um, yeah, I'm a convert. <laughs> yeah, I, I, well, it's there's something very unique. I've been on the the Neshota House Theological Seminary campus. It's beautiful. You come in um, for the benefit of our listeners. What would be unique about the experience there? Uh, I, I imagine people have, uh, you know, perceptions of 
what seminary is like. Many have probably been through that. Others have had friends that have been through it. But you know, if I were to visit, someone were to visit Noshota House, what would they see in the life of the place mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that would stand out? I mean, we would have to start with the fact that we God blessed us with just a sort of a naturally beautiful environment. We're on a lake. It's woodsy. Um, it's it's remote. Like you can get anything you need within eight minutes of the place, but you don't feel like that when you're here. Uh, so that's just uh, a blessing from God. But then apart from that, I think what you would notice is that um, our chapel really sort of functions as the the ethos and ideological and almost literal center of our campus. Um, and, and I say that because we start every day um, at 745 with a, a morning prayer service followed by a daily uh, celebration of the Holy Eucharist. Um, and every day of the week, every, every day of the year, save for Easter morning, um, that happens here. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty, uh, that's pretty unusual. And then we end our day formally with uh, normally a sung even song service again in the Anglican tradition. Um, and that, that sort of is the beginning and end of our day. All of our students, all of our faculty participate in those required services every day. Um, and so one of the reasons that we can kind of uh, live together with one another apart, uh, despite and within differences that we have is that we're sort of founded on brain together. So then in between that, you know, we have meals that we share with one another. And of course, we have classes. And like one of the ways that I like to say it is we start our day in the praise of God. um, And then we kind of go on to our classes to understand a little better what we said, (laughs) what we said to God that morning. And we returned Mm -hmm. into the chapel at the end of the day with sort of more reasons uh, to exalt um, the triune God. And that, you know, rinse, repeat, (laughs) recycle, that has a formative effect on you. It it does, 365 days a year, you know, um, that's a a really formative experience, as you've noted. uh, If I I might interrupt, just in the meantime, in between all of that, then our students also, like, they have to work. Uh, I mean, besides studying, they, they actually do physical labor as a part of their formation. We all do each other's dishes in our uh, refectory. The faculty put aprons on and clear tables and wash dishes just like our students do. Um, and so we, we enjoy a kind of a common life together that you don't see very much out there anymore. And for us, none of these things are a bug. It's a feature, right? Like we wouldn't change it if we had an endless amount of money available to us. We would still be doing that. You know, it's interesting. I'm even reflecting on my own experience. And again, I had a great seminary experience, um, but it, it struck me that I could essentially matriculate all the way through seminary and never really have to work with another fellow seminarian. It was very different than my MBA, mm. which was uh, a high percentage of group and teamwork. Mm. Um, and, and of course, you learn how to deal with conflict and um, people who don't have English as a first language, and you're respon- you know you're responsible for different gifts and skills, uh, strengths, weaknesses. You've got to you know put together um, and work on projects together, meet deadlines and so forth. And there's a, there's a working out of that that's really helpful. And I, I could imagine a communal life where you're maybe not working alongside someone in the classroom interdependent on a project or a paper, but working alongside someone on the grounds of the seminary, eating uh, in chapel 365 days a year in that common rule of life, common rhythm of life. It really does uh, challenge you to um, to think about um, conflict and conflict resolution and um, forgiveness and other things that are really formative for the life of a pastor. That's right. Exactly so. I mean, I think another element of that for us is um, we, our faculty are, you know, probably almost to a fault for the sake of their lives, quite accessible to our students. Mm-hmm. Um, and we eat our meals with the students. Often the topic of a faculty or a, a classroom conversation ends up as a dinner or a lunch conversation, right? Which is just wonderful. Um, the seminary that I went to used to run an ad in like Christianity Today and those sorts of magazines in a big stack of books because they were very prolific scholars and outstanding and say, study with the people who write the books. 
right? And my tagline for us, I don't think it'll ever play as an ad is uh, study with the people who haven't written all of these books because they're eating lunch with you. Um, there you go. Not, not there, that we don't write books, right? But maybe like half or fewer than we would if we were just sort of teachers that went to be recluses. Yeah. No, that's, I'm not sure that'll get by your communication marketing department, but you, but you should try. I always think <laughs> of kind of crazy things like that. And, and you know, the, none of them have gotten by. <laughs> okay. Well, that, that in my book, you're innovative and entrepreneurial, uh, there you not, go. not, not, not stale. <laughs> not <laughs> not stale. <laughs> that's right. Uh, I want to turn to seminary education a little bit more broadly. Um, and you touched on this at the very beginning, but uh, and it might seem like an obvious question, and it probably is an obvious question, but but why is seminary education so vital to uh, the life of the church? Hmm. Right. Um, it, you know, I want to say, I want to start an, an answer to that question by saying, I don't think that that is as obvious as maybe some of us who do this think it should be. And what I want to say in that vein is there are persons that have sort of gifts and charisma and talents and so forth that actually turn out to be pretty effective leaders of churches who haven't had the theological seminary experience or not much of it. And that always is sort of a datum that I think the theological seminaries need to account for. In other words, is it, is it actually the case that there are certain kinds of people that just can do this sort of leadership, or maybe they're good communicators, maybe they sort of learn their craft um, by, by means of um, apprenticing and so forth. And there are a lot of people that are pointing out these days that some of the ministerial formation that we should be doing maybe doesn't need seminaries. Um, and I think we should start with that critique, that sort of datum, and then step back and say, but why doesn't that actually work in the long run? And I think the key phrase there is the long run, which is mm -hmm. to say there is a degenerative effect when people are not well-trained theologically, biblically, are not rooted in uh, Christian spiritual practices in a deep way. Um, and what ends up happening is the church sort of runs on charisma or sort of like, I would say, leadership carbohydrates, you know, which is mm -hmm. one of the things that we're watching, I think, happening in the megachurch phenomenon. Um, and those things run dry, they run flat, um, and they run askew. Whereas I would say the theological seminary here is to teach people not only the rudiments and the deeper things of the faith, but also teach them how to be a lifelong learner in scripture, in the Christian tradition, theology, uh, all of that sort of thing, so that their roots run so deep um, that they can be nourished for a lifetime, rather than just depending on, um, on the sort of the short term and, um, sorry, I'm trying, uh, ephemeral, ephemeral, yeah. ephemeral skills of the leader. Um, yeah. And so, what I think we are watching is that um, the, the move away from theological seminaries, in, especially in the evangelical tradition, is creating a, 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 um, a tendency toward a thoughtless faith that's just endlessly trying to keep people, uh, sorry to say this, but entertained or some sort of trying to pique their interest, sort of gimmick after gimmick. But there isn't anything there that doesn't uh, sustain. It, it won't sustain the Christian faith. And then I would say in the mainline traditions, the, the Protestant mainline traditions, the theological seminaries have been so theologically progressive and adventuresome that they're training people that are not deeply rooted in, in the Christian faith. And they, they are leading churches that have become about other things than salvation through Christ and the worship of the triune God. Um, just good humanitarianism, and that is also not going to sustain. So I feel like theological seminaries have an answer that they need to give to the evangelical world that's running on charisma. We, we have an answer for them. We also need to answer to the fact 
that in some ways in the decline of the church, we've been part of the problem rather than part of the answer. So that's really helpful. From your perspective, um, Gar, you know, if you're sitting in front of a prospective student, what would you tell them or, or how would you respond to them? I guess maybe is a better way to frame this. If they ask you about um, your sort of philosophy of the purpose of seminary education, mm-hmm. how, how, would you, how, would you, how would you articulate that given where we've been in this conversation um, and, and some of the values that I, I think have emerged in your own, um, your own sort of philosophy of formation, um, including your time at, at Neshota House? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, I love to say, uh, I, I, I love having a um, prospective student sitting with me. Uh, mm-hmm. That's one of the things I really love about the job because they're exploring, you know, what, how God is gifted and how God is calling and often how seminary fits in that is just the missing piece. And it's, a, it's, a, it's really fun to talk about how, how it actually it, it is a missing piece for their vocational, um, sen- their sense of call. Right. So, John, to answer that question, I have to talk about it in terms of how we tried to do it here and the way that we see it, which is going to have some in common with other seminaries and maybe some different emphases. But the way that we describe this is in terms of sort of three areas of formation that we think are essential for the Christian leader and ordained person. So when we talk about our curriculum, it's all under three headings. Um, we say them in Latin because it has a little bit of gravitas to it. But the first is a faithful character, or we say habitus fide. So the habits of life, the ethos, the character is sort of fundamental, we think. And then mm-hmm. the second thing is uh, a faithful intellect, faithful, faithful thinking, theology, competency with scripture, um, and thinking through ethical and theological questions. So we say intellectus fide, a faithful intellect. And then thirdly, it's a praxis fide, which is to say faithful practice. So um, ministers, um, ordained people, Christian leaders need to be able to do things uh, effectively, and seminary is about that also. But we don't think seminary is about any one of those things alone apart from the others. And we think that the faithfulness of one's character and the integrity of one's life is really the supremely important thing upon which the other things would be built. Yeah. And we often, in more vernacular, we talk about head, hands, and heart. Yeah. And that actually fits um, you know, with they, that, doesn't it? Yeah, or, you know, I'll sort of, you know, my own take, uh, I, I've thought about uh, orthodoxy, orthopraxy, and orthopathy, right? The, the, the right affections, mm-hmm. the right knowledge, and um, right practice. Yeah, it almost seems like there's something just right about those three things, because <laughs> yeah. in different language, if we're thinking rightly, we're think- those are the three things we're thinking about. Well, and, and it's and it's three. You never can go wrong <laughs> with really number go three. Wrong, right? Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what we can remember. <laughs> well, that, that, that's that's really helpful. Um, and I do think having been to Neshota House and uh, for extended periods of time and just seeing it, I think that those three commitments are are, are really visible and you know a, a real part of the life there. I'd like to explore um, the, historically um, the relationship between seminaries and the church. Um, and, and how that's evolved over time. And I, I know you um, are in an interesting place um, in, in this relationship because you, you serve the Episcopal Church, you, you, you train and equip um, um, leaders within the Episcopal Church and also the Anglican Church of North America, I think other, other denominations as well. And maybe you have students, many students or some students who who are outside of those um, two traditions, but but the the unique relationship that Neshota House has had with the church or denominations, and then how seminary education has how it started, and then from your perspective, how it has evolved with respect to its relationship with particular traditions or denominations within the Christian Church. Yeah, that's a big set of questions, and it and a historian could do better with them than I can. Yeah. But I would say that um, just sort of speaking from within our 
uh, current circle, what what mainline Protestantism had in terms of seminaries um, was a sort of geographical distribution uh, of seminaries for each denomination, each with their own you know distinctive character to some extent, and somehow between geography and small differences of ethos, they would serve that church, and there was a pretty strong mutual regard between the seminaries and the denomination um, that was probably um, made them stable and productive. Um, and I think things have evolved over time into a much more of a sort of marketplace mentality uh, in which seminaries sort of have to fight for their niche. Um, they have to put themselves out there. They have to make the case why even within their own denomination, people ought to attend it. I'm thinking of like the way that uh, Fuller Seminary became a very big um, uh, servant of the Presbyterian Church, especially PCUSA, mm -hmm. right? Not only, of course. Or I think of the way that like Asbury Seminary, where I taught, was never a seminary of the United Methodist Church, but just had a very large number of United Methodists. So what, what it happened and has developed over time is um, unaffiliated um, seminaries started to make the case, and maybe by virtue of their performance, or maybe by virtue of some other uh, qualities of why they should vie for students that were once exclusive to mainline seminaries. And that's happened within the Anglican and Episcopal world as well. I think, like, for example, one of our best op options in the Episcopal Church and in the Anglican Church is the Anglican Episcopal House of Studies at Duke, but Duke's a mm -hmm. Methodist seminary, right? And, you know, Gordon Conwell has an Anglican Studies program. Regent College has an Anglican Studies program. So there's a lot of vying for the same sort of pool of people. And that sort of loyalty between the denomination and their seminaries uh, doesn't exist the way that it once did. And I don't necessarily blame anybody for that. That has to do with practical matters. It also may have something to do with seminaries, the sense that the, the people feel that maybe they failed their denomination. So all of that to say, now for us, we have to make the case that the Neshota House ethos, what we do, the way that we do it, what we sort of stand for and produce, um, is valuable enough that um, we should be serving the traditions that we were created to serve. So there was a time when, say, at our seminary, there were um, dioceses in the Episcopal Church that were known either to be conservative theologically or sort of liturgically high church. They used to call it the Beretta Belt. Um, it, Beretta is that you know is an Anglo-Catholic hat mm -hmm. uh, worn as an alternative to the Canterbury hat. The, okay. the more uh, sort of uh, Protestant Reformed. The, well, the Beretta Belt. Neshota was just their seminary. Neshota didn't have to recruit those students. The bishops from those dioceses said, "Well, of course you're going to Neshota House." Right. That doesn't exist anymore for many of our seminaries. Um, the the student has a much greater role in making the decision. Uh, the bishops are open to sending people a variety of places, and they're very open to the accessibility of theological training. Um, so it just means that seminaries have to become more entrepreneurial. They have to work harder to sort of make their case. And in the case of Episcopal and Anglican seminaries, you know, we're, we're seeing fewer of them than we had 10, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, we have mergers going on seminaries that embed in larger institutions and seminaries that are probably going to go out of business. Um, so we're all sort of fighting for our life in a way. Um, and, you know, a number of ways to do that. One is to make yourself maximally accessible, go to the fully sort of online remote approach. Um, that's not a bad model. Um, that's a possibility. Another way to do it is to prove yourself to be the best. Uh, the most esteemed faculty, um, and so forth. Um, and I think for us, we've chosen to try to be the most distinctive. 
Yeah. Uh, unique. You said the word unique. We're trying to make ourselves the most peculiar um, in ways that we are think we think the church needs today. Yeah. The, you've you've hinted and, and maybe you've been even more explicit about um, all the pressures that are um, not new but maybe intensified. And I wonder if you could speak to some of the the forces. Um, I'm thinking more sort of external forces, uh, demographic forces, changes in the in the in the broader landscape that uh, are changing um, the the formula, so to speak, at at seminaries and schools of divinity. Um, and because it may not be obvious, but you know, I know there are economic, demographic, and other kinds of broad uh, cultural trends and demographic trends that really are having uh, an impact on um, what's happening on the ground. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so an obvious place to start is what the the colleges, undergrad especially, are feeling, which is there's a smaller pool of even possible students. Um, and right. so they're, they're fighting over a smaller pool. Um, that's not a, directly related to us, but it's not not related, right? Because that means that pool, as it moves through the... Uh, um, demographics is going to affect us also. But then, you know, the more particular uh, challenge for the seminaries is that um, church attendance, church membership is declining. Mm -hmm. uh, it's declining precipitously in mainline Protestantism, and mm -hmm. it's declining um, some or maybe not so much among evangelicals. So evangelicals are have a sort of a practically lower view of the seminary than they did um, a generation ago. And the mainline churches are producing fewer persons for ordained ministry and in a lot of cases actually need fewer. Right. So we're that pool is is um, is shrinking. Now, uh, one of the things I would say about us is we we feel like, well, uh, that's a that's an issue. But we're not so large <laughs> that major demographic shifts have to mean the world to us. Um, and in fact, we think that um, there's a hunger, especially among younger Christians, for the sort of formation and training, really the sort of rich uh, uh, and deeply rooted Christianity. Uh, there's a deep hunger for young, among younger Christians, especially people pursuing ordination. Uh, of the sort of thing that we offer here. So I worry a little bit about the demographics, and I think you can see them across the board among the theological seminaries. But for our own institution, I think the answer there is to be um, more, more distinctive and not more generic. Yeah. Or another way I might, I might say that, excuse me, I, I, is I think McDonald's has to worry a lot about people eating less meat and gluten intolerance but if you're like a um if your thing is sort of the gourmet um burger right at a brew pub um you're not as worried about that what you want to mm -hmm. do is like have really great beers and a really great burger that people want to go out of their way to have right and so right. that's kind of where i see us is we're not mcdonald's we're the brew yeah. pub with a gourmet burger yeah. The, I wonder if you could speak a bit more about the economic challenges you see. It, this maybe doesn't apply as much to Neshota House, because I know your student, um, student numbers have been on the incline. Um, so you've been, I think, moving in the opposite direction of a lot of seminary education. Um, I, I think I've got that right. Um, and so you're growing. Um, but I, I, I'm thinking about all the seminaries that are... Um, selling property or trying to sell property to sort of um, reconfigure their balance sheets. And, sure. and, 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 and you just see these sort of massive um, changes taking place. And I, I wonder if you could um, speak to that from your perspective. Right. Well, before we um, uh, exalt ourselves too much, we just have to say Neshota House only exists today because it owns so much highly prized property. So mm -hmm. we've been selling property like other seminaries are today for decades. Mm -hmm. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, we're, 
we're neither proud nor ashamed of that, but it is, it is the case. So we also aren't financially viable yet to the way that we need to be. Um, and one of the ways this institution made it through hard times is it owned property on a lake and good farm property and so forth. So, um, so a lot of seminaries are, are, are finding themselves in that position and, um, uh, and, and we're not unique in that way. On the other hand, as you pointed out, our, our enrollment numbers grew essentially doubled from 2017 to our 2021 census, which is not something you know, many seminaries can say. So we do yeah, think yeah. that um, you know, growth is possible. We are uh, experiencing that. But even so, um, if we took in every possible student that we could fit into every classroom and housing space that we have, it still wouldn't be enough financially to sustain the institution. And I think that's pretty much true for every seminary. And at this point, only the seminaries with really large endowments uh, find themselves in a comfortable position, and even they are ch challenged. Yeah. So you can grow by enrollment and close the uh, financial gap that way, but we also have to close it with endowment money and with, um, with a, a very assertive fundraising. Um, so all of this has a lot to do with how expensive it is to run small educational institutions where you need a substantial, though small, um, well-equipped faculty that deserve to be properly compensated. And then you need all of the staff you need to do all the functions that an institution has. And if you're like we are, you know, in the 100 to 150 student range, there's not enough tuition or fees to fund all of that. Right. So we really need people that believe in it and that will come alongside and say, yeah, this is this is long term strategic for the health and well-being of the, of the church. And, and we're willing to buy into that and be a part of it. Yeah. Yeah. And there I'm assuming you've seminaries have explored fee for service options and other kinds of models of revenue generation. And there just aren't a, probably aren't enough ideas out there to 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 balance the budget. It really does have to come from generous benefactors, foundations, philanthropic initiatives to really make it work. Yeah, I think largely, you know, with probably some exceptions, that's pretty much true across the board. The one thing that you're watching now is that it just turns out that historically um, seminaries were able to locate in places, urban and otherwise, that have become uh, very valuable properties. Right. And so that there is a trend of selling a, a high price property, uh, putting the proceeds into an endowment and then um, moving to a place that's less, uh, less expensive um, and using that endowment to fund future endeavors. So that's a model that we're, we're seeing quite a bit of. Um, and, you know, it's one because of the treasure that we think we sit on. We, we hope not to exercise. Yeah, yeah. And for the benefit of our listeners, um, Neshota House is located in Neshota, Wisconsin, which is about midway, um, it, it about midway between Madison and Milwaukee, close to Oconomowoc, um, but just a beautiful setting. So I think I wanted to get this in earlier. It's the oldest um, educational institution. Is this right in the state of Wisconsin? Right. So it predates. Uh, Beloit College, which I think is quite old, University of Wisconsin. Carroll College is our closest uh, competitor. There's a little, there's a little competition between the two of us. It's sort of like, what do you mean by a higher education institution? Yeah, so, but you know, this is our podcast, so Neshota's the oldest. We will claim Neshota House today. Uh, it's great. It's like Wisconsin and Minnesota claiming the most lakes, right. Uh, right. you know, in the country. Uh, so let, let me take a little bit of a different angle. Um, I, I want to explore some of the challenges and hurdles that different stakeholders within the uh, seminary ecosystem face. And um, I, I'd like to first um, have you reflect on challenges that students face. When they show up at Neshota House and matriculate through the program, what are some of the typical challenges that you have to help them overcome and build um, organizational capacity to help them overcome? Mm, wow. Yeah. Great question. So 
I mean, I think a starting place is um, especially the way that we do formation um, and especially for our residential students, they like literally, well, almost literally leave their nets uh, and follow Jesus, right? So they're, they're typically often selling homes, leaving vocations um, in order to do this. And they're doing it uh, in a church that has, uh, no matter what they're affiliated with, they're doing it in a church that has an uncertain future. So they sense that God has called them. And so they're, they're doing this training at great personal expense, literal and, and, and psychic, um, for a future that is a little bit uncertain. So that's probably that kind of overriding anxiety is a, is a great starting mm -hmm. place. It's also kind of a great starting place for formation, right? Trusting God. Right. Um, and it's one of the reasons we think our students come out with a kind of commitment and resilience that maybe isn't typical everywhere. So mm -hmm. th that would be kind of a starting point. Um, I think a, a sort of second challenge is um, all graduate education is stressful. Um, you're, you're being tested um, a, a, with your peers. Um, you you, you want to keep up. You want to do well. Um, but for most of our students, that may, they have a family. They're trying to do right by their family, be good uh, parents in right. a lot of cases being good spouses and so forth. So just kind of fitting the demands of, of, of a very demanding formation together with family life. Um, mm -hmm. Our approach is not, you know, not so different than a boot camp or a med school or a law school in terms of the mm -hmm. demands. But of course, mm -hmm. those places are sort of known for often destroying families. And if we want mm -hmm. to strengthen families. So that's another right. thing that we we really have to work hard to shepherd people through that experience. And I, I don't say we always, you know, succeed 100 um, percent. But many of many of our students will look alumni look back and say, yeah, those are some of that was hard. And they were some of the happiest years of our life um, yeah. because of what we experienced. I think a third thing is, again, this has to do with the way we're doing formation is um, the best thing about us is our community life. And it's it's absolutely the worst thing about us. Like it's the hardest yeah. part of the experience is you go from how wonderful it is to make all these new friends and to have fun together to realize somebody who's my neighbor never picks up his dog's poop, right? And my right. kids stepped right. in it and I can't get them to do the right thing. Yeah. Or um, they make too much noise or um, they're obnoxious in class, you know, and Right. So all of those things, which we talked about earlier, um, are another, you know, I think really big challenge. But if you add all of those things up, like taking the risk, um, 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 managing a, a very challenging uh, set of demands and schedule, living in community, it's also just like a it's a crucible for formation if it's handled well yeah. and, and um, done well. Garwood, I wonder if you could speak to challenges um, that faculty face. Mm. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think um, the first thing I would say is um, faculty that are in theological seminaries, they want to be there. Um, some of them had options to do other things and forming people for ministry um, in, within the context of a discipline that they care about and think is important. They, they want it. Um, and so, you know, sometimes we'll complain about our lives and the demands and so forth, but it's good to step back and say, yeah, but if I were independently wealthy, I would probably choose something like what I do mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. maybe bargain for a, a few things, <laughs> but, mm -hmm. uh, it's a great life. And that's true of our faculty. Um, even as it concerns sort of the communal and pastoral and mentoring uh, overload that they experience um, given the way that we do things. They're here because they want to be here and they, they believe in this way of doing seminary formation. Yep. That said, it can be sort of never ending, you know, not unlike a parish priest or a, a, a church uh, minister, <clears throat> the, the needs and demands of, of people around you can be overwhelming and, um, and finding that the space and balance in life can be difficult. Um, a particular challenge for, I think, 
our faculty is because they don't just teach and and uh, and and leave the campus to to their personal studies. Um, they would like to be active and make an important contribution in their disciplines, but time is short for that. Not a lot of extra time available to it, and and so sometimes they feel pressure. Um, as they compare themselves to peers that they had knew from grad school who are publishing more or maybe uh, making a bigger name for themselves. Are they, are they making the right choice? Yeah. Garbutt, I want to also give some airtime for administrators and staff. Um, I'm sympathetic <laughs> uh, to this category, but, but what's particularly challenging? Do you find particularly challenging in the, in the role uh, you play and some of your colleagues there that are um, serving in an administrative capacity? Right. So, you know, an expression we use around here is because we're small and we have a, a, a fairly skeletal staff and administration compared to what we might wish for, um, that we punch above our weight. Um, mm -hmm. we, we hustle <laughs> um, because the other option is not existing. Mm -hmm. So our administrators, our staff, they, they go that extra mile. Um, they're very, very hardworking, dedicated people. And at a certain point, of course, if that sort of work-life balance goes too far askew for too long, other things develop like unhealthy patterns and resentments and internal tensions one with another. So I would say that um, living under the shadow of a financial and enrollment perpetual challenge can be very wearing on people. Yeah. Um, and so we make a lot of the progress that we make, but even as we make progress, we're sometimes reminded there's still a ways to go uh, for us to, to entirely fulfill the vocation we think we have. I just want to say yeah. one other stress that I think theological seminaries are facing is um, we know that our whole, you know, um, American public has become more polarized. Um, it, 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 our, our social discourse tends to be more vitriolic than, than ever, or at least in our lifetimes. And that has afflicted the church. And so one of the challenges that we, we face in, our, in the seminaries, and this is across the board, is that um, a very opinionated and confident onlooking public always has opinions about um, decisions, theological, ethical business that the seminaries are making. And every decision you make is wrong to somebody. And realizing that although you enjoy a certain rapprochement among your community and within your borders, um, that's harder to achieve out there. Um, and, and just knowing that every choice will be subject to somebody's second guessing and, and judgment can wear on a person in, yeah. in a divided and you know broken church. Yeah, I wanted to highlight this because I do think it's, um, it's important. All institutions have unique demands and challenges, and those who are called to lead institutions um, face those challenges in, in very sort of unique and personal ways. Mm -hmm. And um, I think seminaries are... Um, are a particular kind of institution, and the pressures um, mount, and um, and 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 they're challenging. And so, I wanted to give you an opportunity to give some voice to that because I, I it's not always obvious that um, that these challenges are in place. Um, I'm my guess is that um, you have a lot that you're thankful for, that you see a lot of hopefulness, that you have a lot of hope, that you see real signs of resilience and um, new things happening in graduate theological education. What, what brings you hope um, and, um, and, and just sort of, um, you know, animates you these days as you look around um, beyond Neshota House, but also um, with respect to Neshota House? The thing that I'm thankful for that just gives me hope and gets me out of bed every day, um, it's pretty simple and it's almost singular. And that is I get to watch people change grow, be transformed over a period of time um, in, a, in the formation that they're doing in seminary. And then I get to go out and visit them in the churches and the places where they serve and see 
um, that we made a great investment of our time and efforts mm -hmm. because they are they're much beloved, they're appreciated, they're they're transforming congregations. And if I could just multiply that effect uh, with you know more students, more graduates, more transformation happening out there, I think the theological seminary is not the answer for a declining church, but it's been part of the problem for too long. And it can be one important part of what transforms, uh, you know, a Christian church in America today that is, that is struggling. But um, looking at it more hopefully, optimistically, I just sincerely believe that well-formed persons of high integrity, knowledge and skills, um, will make a big impact on the church. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is this is great. I, I want to move toward closing our conversation, but I, I did have a final question for you, um, Gar, and I, I wondered if you could speak a little bit um, to the role of hospitality in seminary education. And I'm looking here at something that, when I was at Neshota House, was, was um, placed before me, and that is um, a prayer for Neshota mm -hmm. House. Mm -hmm which I think is in some ways, you know, it's a prayer of blessing, mm -hmm. but it's really um, maybe in the Benedictine tradition, you know, really a statement about hospitality. And I wonder if you could speak to this document and we'll post this in the mm -hmm. show notes or a link to this in the show notes so our listeners can, can find it. But um, what is the role of, what is the prayer for Neshota House? And then what is the role of uh, seminary uh, hospitality um, in seminary education? Right. Uh, thank you. Well, um, that prayer you're referring to, and it'd be great if you, you wish to link it. Um, it's a prayer we uh, pray literally every day at our evening prayer service. Bless, O Lord, this house set apart to the glory of thy great name and for the benefit of thy holy church. I, I could say the whole thing because I, I do right. say it every day. And you're right. It is a it is a invocation of God to bless this place that through it, uh, the church and the world might be blessed. Um, mm -hmm. And you're right also that um, it, it has a Benedictine flavor and that hospitality is a, is a sort of a key idea um, within, that, within that framework. And so what we believe about that is that God has spaces in the world and we happen to have inherited one of them where um, persons can come together who might in other spaces, never know one another, or worse, be at enmity with one another, and be welcomed and received, um, and know the love of Christ concretized in an actual human community, right? Mm. So that's what hospitality means, and we think that we've been gifted, uh, I won't say uniquely, but especially in this space, um, and especially for this time, to exercise that kind of hospitality. And we think that it's transformative when people um, experience it as those who receive it, and even more so as they exercise that kind of hospitality. Mm. Yeah. Well, I have enjoyed this conversation. Uh, Garwood Anderson, thank you very much. I think that's a good note and word to end on. Um, we will share more about uh, Neshota House and Garwood uh, in our show notes. Um, I'm, I'm, more encouraged and uh, hopeful as a result of this conversation. I appreciate it. We appreciate all that you're doing at Neshota House and, and the way that you're um, uh, really advocating and, and really working on behalf of graduate theological education more broadly. So thank you for your work and uh, thanks to our listeners. And um, we really appreciate this time with you. Well, it's been exceedingly uh, kind of you to, to give me a chance to, uh, to talk about these things with you. I know we share all of these passions in, in common and sharing this last name house, working in collaboration with you all toward similar ends with different vocations is just one of our real delights. Yeah, well, ours, ours as well. So thank you, Garwood. Uh, so good to spend this time with you. Great, thank you. Thanks for joining us. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to check out our upcoming events on upperhouse.org and our other podcast, Upwards, where we dig deeper into the topics our in-house guests are passionate about. 
With Faith in Mind is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Hosted by Dan Hummel and John Terrell. Our executive producer and editor is Jesse Koopman. Please follow us on social media with the handle at Upper House UW. What I think we are watching is that the, the move away from theological seminaries, in especially in the evangelical tradition, is creating a, a tendency toward a thoughtless faith that's just endlessly trying to keep people, um, sorry to say this, but entertained or some sort of trying to pique their interest, sort of gimmick after gimmick.